You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Sam Bankman-Fried built a multi-billion dollar crypto empire. Now he has to convince a jury that it wasn't built on fraud. His FTX crypto empire collapsed in November of last year, and he was arrested in the Bahamas about a month later and accused of orchestrating a massive fraud and bilking investors and customers out of billions of dollars. On day two of his trial in Manhattan Federal Court, the first two of a parade of former close friends took the stand to testify against him. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison, who was in the courtroom today. So one of the three main witnesses who are cooperating with prosecutors took the stand today. Yes, we heard from Gary Wong, who co-founded FTX and Alameda with Sam Bateman-Fried. The two men actually met in math camp together when they were in high school and they were roommates at MIT. It was the first time Gary had really been seen in public since the collapse of FTX last November. He started off talking about how he committed a multi-billion dollar fraud with Sam Bankman-Fried and that Sam Bankman-Fried directed him to change the code that eventually led to Alameda being able to borrow billions of dollars in customer funds from FTX. He was speaking very quickly and at certain points the judge had to ask him to slow down. He also had to point out Sam Bankman-Fried in the court and sort of strained his neck and looked over the ocean of lawyers in front of him and pointed at Sam and identified him in front of the jury. Did the prosecution get into his cooperation in exchange for his testimony? Yes. Pretty early on, Gary said that he had committed a financial crime and he explained that that happened um, at FTX and he did agree with the prosecutor that he'd pleaded guilty to that crime and had put into a cooperation deal, which landed him in court testifying today. So how long was he on the stand? Gary got on pretty late in the day. He was on for uh, less than an hour, so his testimony will continue into tomorrow. And so before him was another one of Bankman Freed's former friends. Yes, we heard from another close friend of Sam Bankman Freed. They also went to MIT together. They worked at uh, FTX together. His name was Adam Yadidia. He was a developer and he um, gave some pretty insightful evidence about discovering the $8 billion hole Alameda um, had in summer of 2022. He spoke about a conversation he had with Sam in June last year where he asked him about this $8 billion hole and Sam said, we were bulletproof last year but we're not bulletproof now. 
and he took that to mean that related to the $8 billion in liabilities that Alameda had to FTX. And that debt came about because Alameda was able to borrow as much money as it wanted from um, FTX whenever it wanted. His testimony also sort of gave us a window into what the lives of the FTX top staff was. Yes, this witness spoke a little bit about how they shared a $35 million penthouse in the Bahamas at their luxury resort called um, Albany. He described it as being dorm-like in that he lived with eight or nine other people, but not very dorm-like in terms of aesthetics because it was very luxurious, looked over the ocean, had a rooftop pool. The jury was also shown a text message Sam Bateman-Fried had sent to a number of people who lived in that apartment saying that Alameda had bought the apartment as well, which is one of the key allegations in this case that Sam used money that Alameda had taken from FTX to purchase property in the Bahamas. And he was testifying under a grant of immunity. That's right. That came out today as well, that when he received a grand jury subpoena last year as part of this investigation, he and his lawyers met with prosecutors and he asked for immunity to be able to speak to them. He was concerned that as being a developer at FTX and working a lot on the exchange code, that he had unwittingly changed code that turned out to be a crime. How effective was the cross-examination? They questioned him about Sam Bankman-Fried's spending habits? Yes. The prosecution questioned Adam, his friend, the FTX developer, about the kind of things that Sam spent his money on. Adam said that he didn't know Sam to be the kind of guy that bought fancy clothes or nice watches or sports cars. The defence actually asked him if Sam drove around in a Toyota Corolla. The witness said he didn't know, but the judge said, you know, I think everyone in this court knows what a Toyota Corolla is. (laughs) It seems kind of sad because they showed a text that said, I love you, Sam. I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry. Yeah, and it's a it's a bit of a insight into how close their friendship was. Uh, Adam said that he sent this as FTX was getting into trouble borders in November, uh, and it was emerging publicly that Alameda owed a whole lot of money to FTX. But he said he made the decision to resign when he found out that Alameda was actually using uh, customer funds to pay back loans to creditors. That was a final straw for him, and he resigned. And then a few days later, FTX filed bankruptcy. And did his testimony undercut SBF's contention that he wasn't closely involved with the running of Alameda? Yes, it did. Sam um, publicly has long said that he took a step back from Alameda to run FTX and that he wasn't involved in the day-to-day operations of Alameda and his lawyers made that point during their opening statement. So Adam's evidence sort of cuts through that. He says that that Sam knew what was going on, um, knew about the relationship between FTX and Alameda as well, and most importantly knew about the $8 billion hole from about June 2022. Besides pointing out Sam Bankman-Fried, were there any exchanges or looks between the two of them as he was testifying? Not really. Sam mostly stared straight ahead. Sometimes he was taking notes on his laptop, but there wasn't much interaction um, between them at all. I found the witness. He was very considered and thoughtful with his answers. He would think about the questions and then he would lean forward and mainly answer yes or no into the microphone. If he didn't know something, he wouldn't pretend that he tried to know the answer to it. Is the jury paying attention? 
The jury is paying attention. I think it's uh, some of the evidence when it was going through the minutiae of FTX and how they accepted customer deposits and where the deposits went and definitions of stable coin and margin trading. I think, it, you know, maybe the, the attention was waning a little bit, but when it got into the details about their friendship and some of the criminal allegations, I think that's when they seemed to be most engaged, me anyway. And so tomorrow in court, the cross-examination of Gary Wong. Thanks so much, Ava. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny-Morrison. Coming up next, we'll talk to a former federal prosecutor from the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office about the strategies at play in the trial. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Joining me now for a look at the strategies involved in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried is former federal prosecutor Joshua Neftalis, a partner at Palace Partners. In opening statements, the prosecutor painted this picture of Bankman-Fried as calculating a criminal mastermind who used investor deposits at FTX as a personal bank account who was not what he appeared to be. What do you think of that approach? Is it a stretch in Bankman-Fried's case? I don't think so. In fact, it's a common way of introducing a white-collar defendant in an embezzlement, accounting fraud, misappropriation case. And particularly a case like this where just billions and billions of dollars were allegedly misused and misappropriated, I think it's accurate. What does the prosecution have to prove here? The prosecution's job is actually, I think, simpler than all of us think. They really just need to show that Bankman-Fried lied to his investors, lied to his customers, and stole the money. So it may take a long time. There may be a lot of documents and testimony. But in the end, it's a case about lies, greed, theft. So Bankman-Fried's lawyers in opening statements said the prosecutor had portrayed their client as a cartoon villain rather than the math nerd he truly was, and that Sam didn't intend to defraud anyone. There was no theft. What does their opening tell you about their defense strategy? 
I think they're setting up what is often the fight in a white-collar case, which is, did the defendant intend to do what happened? The facts are probably not going to be too much in dispute. Where did the money go? How is it used? The question is, as the defense is setting it up, did he intend to do something wrong? Did he think he was committing a crime? And I think what we're saying here is he didn't intend to do anything wrong, and the government is exaggerating by trying to, as I said, painting him as some cartoon villain. They're stretching, and they're asking the, the jury to sort of hold in their heads judgment as to what happened and say the government is really not giving you a full picture. Three of his top executives have pleaded guilty to fraud and agreed to cooperate, including his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who ran the crypto hedge fund, Alameda Research. And she's expected to be the state's star witness. The prosecutors portrayed her as like Bankman-Fried's closest confidant, the only one who knew what was going on, while the defense appeared to try to shift the blame to her, saying that, you know, he urged her to hedge their exposure to further losses, and she just didn't do it. How much does the prosecution's case depend upon Ellison? I don't think it it rises and falls on Ellison. I think what the government is doing is using all three of these cooperating witnesses to corroborate what, what I expect the documents, the emails, the Twitter posts, the bank records will show, that the stories of these cooperating witnesses, including Ellison, match up with what the documents show. I think the drama will be the cooperating witnesses. It's obviously a lot more interesting to hear from live witnesses who are in the mix, so to speak, than to have someone walk you through how the money moved. With their on-again, off-again romantic relationship, how will that play in, if at all, either in the prosecution's direct or in the defense's cross? So I think the government's going to try to exploit that by saying, this is someone who was as close as they get to the defendant. And that's the type of person you commit a crime with. You don't commit a crime with a random person on the street. You do it with someone you trust, including a girlfriend. And that's how you know that she was in on it and she's telling you the truth. The defense, as you said, is going to try to shift the blame and say, this really wasn't Bankman-Fried's fault. This was his girlfriend who is now trying to get a good deal and shifting the blame to him. And she didn't follow his instructions to hedge. So the debate's going to be, Who's telling the truth? Is it the government's portrayal as she's an honest broker of the facts, or is it Bankman Freed trying to impeach her story and saying she's leaving out the fact that Bankman Freed had given instructions which were apparently ignored in his telling? The biggest question, as always in criminal cases, is whether the defendant will take the stand. Bankman Freed is not like other defendants in that he talked and talked and talked before and after his arrest. So, He's got a lot of explaining to do if he gets on the stand, but do you think he's the type who may want to take the stand? I think he's going to take the stand, and I think he's more likely than the average defendant to take the stand. As you mentioned, he's talked a lot, and the government has a lot of material apparently to work with, so he may be tempted to try to explain what he meant. The government and the witnesses they call are going to say that the evidence shows that he intended to commit a crime, and Bankman-Fried may be tempted, and it, it may be a good strategy to get up there and say, listen, as his lawyer said in their opening statements, this company went from zero to a million in a couple of years. They were building the airplane in the air, and he's going to need to explain why that means that mistakes were made, but he didn't intend to do anything wrong. Do you think he needs to be on the stand in order to have a chance of winning at least one juror over? This is the hardest decision for a defendant and his lawyers to make. I think that this is the kind of case where he's going to want to testify. He, he seems to have that personality, and it also seems to be the kind of case where a defendant 
would want to take on that burden. Now, I wonder if at some point it looks like everyone got a deal except for him. I mean, even the second witness, his friend, was testifying under a grant of immunity. So might it seem to the jury like, well, he's the only one taking the blame for everything? The defendant will certainly argue that. And I think that's one of the, the things that the government needs to deflect. Immunity isn't really that big of a deal doesn't mean the, the witness was getting a deal. What it means is that the person had exposure and he was being compelled to testify by the court and what he said couldn't be used against him to, to prosecute him. Now, that, that might be lost on the average juror, but the, the defense, I expect, will argue, listen, everyone here is, is pointing the finger at him. It's not fair for him to take the fall. At the start of the trial, prosecutors and defense attorneys said that they'd never held any negotiations over a plea agreement and no deal had ever been offered to Bankman Freed. Why do you think prosecutors didn't offer him a deal so they wouldn't have to go through this trial? I think there are two reasons they said that at the beginning. The first is uh, to protect the record. Um, it's, it's pretty common at the beginning, of, right before the trial starts, to put on the record where plea uh, discussions had or had not gone to avoid a defendant arguing later I would have taken the deal. Um, in this case, I think that Bankman-Fried, my, my read of this is the government will always ask, are you interested in, in having a conversation without obviously getting into the details? My read is that Bankman-Fried just said no. Um, I don't think the government would have turned down a, a negotiated plea, uh, but it takes two to tango here. What do you think the biggest challenge for the government will be in presenting this case? I think the biggest challenge is keeping the narrative clear, crisp, and understandable. As I said at the beginning, they want to talk about the crime as a crime of embezzlement, misappropriation, and lies. They want to avoid getting into the nuances of, of crypto, how the technology worked, and getting the jurors lost or bored. Now, that may be a strategy the defense moves to because they want to make this sound complicated and something that got out of control. Yeah. His attorney in opening statement said the rise and fall of FTX mirrored the wider crypto industry. And this case in many ways is about crypto from 2017 to 2022. So you think that's where they'll try to shift? Yes, I think in a number of ways. What you alluded to earlier, which is, is he being asked to carry the bag for the fact that the market collapsed? Is that unfair? And second, trying to argue that the rules were being written for cryptocurrency as the business was growing and as this crime allegedly took place. So it's not fair to say he committed a crime or he didn't intend to because there were, were no rules. And then the third is sort of the, I asked other people to do things and they didn't listen to me. And that's how a growing business, including in cryptocurrency, works. And the strategy will be to confuse the jurors, or at least one of them, as you said, to just try to hang the jury. I don't think this is a case the defense lawyers are thinking an acquittal is likely. I think that they're going for a hung jury. Prosecutors have these millions of pages of digital evidence, texts and emails and snippets of computer code, and they have the three witnesses who turned state's evidence. And so it seems like an uphill battle for Bankman Freed and that maybe a hung jury is the most he could really ask for. Yeah, I mean, I think trying to convince 12 people you didn't do it is much harder, obviously, than convincing one person that there's a doubt. And when you have that much evidence, you are really playing to the lowest common denominator there. 
as opposed to the government, which has this huge burden of convincing 12 people that the defendant is guilty. And that's why I think the government will pursue sort of a clear narrative and the, the defense will try to make this about the confusing world of crypto. Potential prison term. We're hearing more than a century of convicted on all charges. But what's a more likely sentence here? There's something called the sentencing guidelines, which is an advisory guideline range Judge Kaplan will have to consider. If the defendant's convicted, I imagine his guidelines will be life in prison. The reality is that getting that much time is very rare. Sort of Bernie Madoff is the closest analog in, in that regard, and that's just sort of a different type of crime. It's a Ponzi scheme as opposed to sort of an embezzlement case. It's hard to predict. It really depends on whether he testifies and if he lies. The danger there is he could enhance the argument that the government would have that this is someone who needs to be punished. He didn't just defend himself. He got in front of a jury and lied. And that could really put his exposure higher. Do you think that the judge's pretrial rulings, which seem to favor the prosecution, do you think that they'll hamper the defense, for example, not being able to call the expert witnesses they wanted to, not being able to mention advice of counsel and opening statements? I don't think so. Judge Kaplan is is a brilliant judge. I had the honor and privilege to try a, a big insider trading case in front of him. He's very well respected. He's very fair. And what he's trying to do is call the balls and strikes, so to speak, which is let the evidence that's allowed to come in come in and keep the evidence that's not permitted under the rules to come in, keep that out. And there may have been certain types of evidence the defense would have liked to have put in because it would have helped them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the rules permitted it. So Yes, that may hamper them. They, they couldn't call certain expert witnesses. On the advice of counsel issue, what he ruled was that they couldn't open on it. That doesn't mean that if the evidence comes in in a way that allows them to mount this argument, it's off the table. So I think he's playing it straight and fair, which is what I would expect of one of the great judges in the Southern District. Wow, that's saying something. So how important is it to the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office to win this case? It's obviously important. I mean, Damian uh, Williams is is the U.S. attorney. He's a friend and he's a great a great prosecutor. And I would say he treats all of his children equally. Uh-huh. But this is this is clearly an important case um, because of the press attention and because of the deterrent effect that it could have in the industry. So I think it's important they win. But I think that the government always wants to win because there's they bring cases that they think are worthy of prosecution, and they think that that conviction is is the right result. Here, there's a little bit of a microscope because of the the press attention. So I think that adds a little bit of pressure for everyone. We'll see how it all evolves. Thanks so much for being on the show, Josh. That's former federal prosecutor Joshua Neftalis of Palace Partners. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. 
or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. There's no case here. There's no victim. The banks aren't a victim. The insurance companies are a victim. Everybody got paid. It's a terrible, terrible thing. This was for politics. Donald Trump held court with reporters outside the courtroom where he's on trial for inflating the value of his assets by billions of dollars to dupe banks and insurers, effectively turning the Manhattan courthouse into a bully pulpit, creating photo ops and sound bites of him railing about his civil fraud trial for social media and fundraising. The trial will help determine the fate of Trump's real estate empire in New York. Attorney General Letitia James is seeking a quarter of a billion dollars and to bar Trump and his eldest sons from serving as officers of any New York company. Judge Arthur N. Gorin already resolved the biggest claim in the case last week by holding Trump liable for fraud. Joining me is Joshua Kastenberg, a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School and a former judge and prosecutor in the U.S. Air Force. Before the trial even began, Trump called the trial a scam, a sham, a witch hunt, a political vendetta by the New York Attorney General. He called her a corrupt person. He called the judge a rogue and said he should be disbarred. And then repeatedly over three days, he called the judge corrupt and made this ridiculous statement that the judge could be charged criminally for what he's doing. What is he up to here? This is the judge that's going to decide the case. Well, you know, so this is not a basis to force the judge to recuse himself, because if it were, everyone would be doing it, right? So this reminds me of what one of the justices on the United States Supreme Court said many, many years ago in a New York trial called the trial of Foley Square. Members of the American Communist Party were on trial, and they and their attorneys were just badgering Judge Harold Medina. And I'll paraphrase the quote, Justice Frankfurter said they were sorely trying the judge's patience in the hopes of seeking a mistrial, but they forgot that when they're the cause of the mistrial, they're not going to get it. And I think this is exactly what's going on here. I don't believe that Trump's attorneys are telling him to do this. I think he's acting on his own. But this is the kind of thing that tyrants do. You don't like the way the courts are set up. You try to create a scenario so that judges are harassed online or in the public. You don't like the judge even more so. You go after their clerks. And by the way, going after the judge's clerk is a setup on himself for a civil suit. We know the Gene Carroll civil suit. This is one where I think the clerk, who he accused of having an affair with Chuck Schumer, could even go after higher dollar value because she is likely to be harassed in the social media. But on top of that, Trump was already on notice that you don't do this sort of thing. So what is he up to? Either there's a method to this madness or it's unrestrained, maniacal behavior. 
let's talk about the actual issues in the trial. The judge already found him liable for fraud and canceled certificates for many of his companies holding the assets at issue. So what's left in this trial? Mainly damages. But, you know, Trump's main defenses are twofold. One is the banks have all gotten paid. And maybe that's correct. Maybe that's not correct. Because the way that, you know, high-end real estate, as one of my good friends said, in the world of corporate real estate, if you're not spending other people's money, you're a chump. And so there's always this rotating debt that gets paid over and over again. And if it doesn't get paid, you're not the one who, who suffers. The other shareholders do. The banks do. But then the banks find ways to basically recover by hitting up everybody else, including governments and you know, lowering their interest rates on savings accounts of working women and men in this country and, and the like. So he's had a business model that's not uniquely his. But that defense may or may not work to a degree on assessing damages. The other issue, though, the main issue is, what has New York been out of? Because New York's civil damages, part of them are, did Trump pay his taxes? And all the the organization and all the taxes that the state of New York was entitled to, to fund their police forces, their other first responders, their schools, their road constructions, and everything else the state needs. So... There's a $250 million civil trial, fraud trial against him, and what's at stake is the $250 million, which if he doesn't pay any appeals, it will accrue interest on a daily basis until it makes its way through the appellate courts, and his ability to do business in the state of New York. Well, as long as the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ are in New York, and New York is sort of the capital of, of American commerce to this day, still then then he's got to find other venues he will that's part of his travel down to florida he will find other venues but all of that is is at stake and it will reduce his overall net worth you know it's a source of pride to him that he's in the forbes top 400 or top 100 but he's not this year and he'll dip underneath it if he loses the 250 million his lawyers said christopher guy said Quote, there was no intent to defraud. There was no illegality. There was no default. There was no breach. There was no reliance from the banks. There was no unjust profits, and there were no victims. Another lawyer, Alina Habas, called Trump's assets Mona Lisa properties that could fetch premium prices if Trump sold them. Weren't those arguments that the judge already rejected in making the fraud finding? Well, they're entitled to raise them for damages. Having said that, you know, they're firing their best shot. I'm not faulting the lawyers on the defense that they're trying to raise, because frankly, I think it's it's their best shot. But the problem with that is this is not a victimless crime. You know, that's one of the issues that are out there. It's not actually a crime because this is a civil trial, of course, but it's not victimless. The people of New York who rely on sound commerce to to have tax funding for the things that I've already mentioned and other things are the victims in this case. They may not feel it directly, but they are. The banks may or may not consider themselves victims. I, I have a view of Deutsche Bank and the other banks that They'd rather cover up their largesse than admit to the public they were victimized, so you're not going to have bankers coming in. 
the idea that of blaming it on Mazars, well, that runs contrary to the law because ultimately you and I and everyone else are responsible for the accuracy of our our filings. But I understand why the defense would try to deflect that. I mean, any any reasonable lawyer would do what they're doing. It's just that their arguments are wrong. Trump's lawyer read from one of the disclaimers, and Trump, during a break on Tuesday, talked about it to reporters. He said, many, many warnings, page one, page two, and many pages, it says, please, you must understand that you have to do your own due diligence. Do not rely on anything. Do not rely on the financial statements. What role do the disclaimers play? So there's a basic theory of law that I just went over last week with my first-year criminal law students called the ostrich instruction. To draw an analogy of the ostrich instruction or the ostrich rule, if I were to say to you, June, I'm going to give you $25,000 to drive a car from New York to Los Angeles, and I'll pay for all your gas and lodging, I have one rule. Under no circumstances should you look in the glove compartment. Don't do it, but here's your 25000 If you're stopped by the Kansas State Police and their canine unit sniffs cocaine in the glove compartment, guess what? You don't have a defense because you had a duty to look in the glove compartment. You take that analogy, the, the ostrich analogy, the duty to learn into this civil case, and again, it's a civil case, and that argument just doesn't fly. It doesn't fly either way. It doesn't help Mazars, and it sure as heck doesn't help the Trump organization because both of them had a duty, both entities had a duty to ensure accuracy. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, tension in the courtroom. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. When Donald Trump's civil fraud trial broke for lunch in Manhattan on Wednesday, the former president didn't return. Trump is accused of inflating the value of his assets by billions of dollars a year to do banks and insurers. And the trial will help determine the fate of his real estate empire in New York. During the two and a half days Trump attended the trial, he turned the Manhattan courthouse into a bully pulpit, railing against the attorney general who brought the case, the judge who's presiding over the trial, and the process. This is a continuation of the single greatest witch hunt of all time. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundred, a tiny fraction of what they actually are. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show who ran on the basis that she was going to get Trump before she even knew anything about me. The New York attorney general signaled she was glad to see Trump go. I will not be bullied. And so Mr. Trump is no longer here. The Donald Trump show is over. This was nothing more than a political stunt, a fundraising stop. And now we can continue to go forward with our trial, and we are confident that justice will be served. I've been talking to Professor Josh Kastenberg of the University of New Mexico Law School. Josh, there were a lot of tense moments in the courtroom while Trump was there. And at one point, during the state's first witness, which was Trump's longtime accountant, Mazars accountant Donald Bender, there was this really strange interaction between one of Trump's lawyers, Jesus Suarez, and the judge. The judge repeatedly warned Suarez to, he was doing a painstaking questioning of Bender over each property listed on Trump's financial statements. And the judge warned him to stop that, to refrain from that. And at one point, the judge ran out of patience. He pounded the bench yelling, this is ridiculous. That's just so rare in a courtroom. 
Yeah, you know, as a former judge, I, I know that you're always supposed to keep your cool in the court. But when you have rebuked counsel, first you gently remind counsel what prior rulings were about and what's relevant in the trial. But when they continue to ignore your orders, you have two choices. You can either elevate your voice or threaten them with contempt. Or you could remove them, actually, from the case. Frankly, I would say that I would have given an actual contempt warning, saying one more time, you violated my my rulings, whether my rulings are right or wrong. There's an appeal for that. But I can understand a judge at the state court level losing, you know, their, their temper over this. It is, however, very rare. But let's keep in mind that before it got to that point, this judge, for whatever his normal demeanor is, was sorely tested by the point when he conducted himself in that manner. Would that be an appellate issue? Is that one of the reasons that they're testing the judge? Oh, sure. They're trying to concoct many appellate issues, and attorneys normally will do that, but not when they're at fault for it. This is going to be one of those things that the New York, you know, the intermediate appellate court, if they get it, and certainly the New York Court of Appeals, the the equivalent of a Supreme Court in other states, is going to have to deal with. But I would think up until this point, the answer from the appellate courts is this conduct was exacerbated and ignited by the attorneys and not by the judge himself. What do you think the attorney general is trying to show with the first couple of witnesses? I think they're going to try to show that uh, Trump intentionally presented dubious information, and this is why the, the filings were the way they were over the years, and it's not so much Mazar's doing as it is the Donald's. Trump's lawyers filed a notice of appeal of Judge Ngoran's ruling last week, finding him liable for fraud. What do you think the chances are for an appeal? Because that ruling was novel in a lot of ways. You know, I, I don't think they're going to prevail on that particular appeal right now. The judge's ruling was novel, but the judge's ruling was also novel as a result of the defense counsel's filings, as well as the defense counsel's conduct up until this point. And so the judge could reach a decision based on certain matters, you know, involving the case in chief. And so it's novel, but this is not a normal trial. And, you know, the defense have used a strategy, uh, if I can call it that, that has been somewhat surprising for others and for myself. Tell me a little bit more about that strategy. Well, you know, the first thing is, did they intend on going judge alone? Uh, did they intend on on pursuing the defense initially uh, with all the discovery that's gone back and forth with, yes, Trump signed documents, and yes, the Trump organization may have overvalued its its properties, but they did on this unique theory that's unknown to law, like the Mona Lisa properties. So, you know, for example, if you or I were to buy a building in New York, we would assume that the value of the building is what the banks, the real estate folks, Zillow or whoever else, told us what the value of the building is, never before that I can think of in a court and or in my research has someone purchased a home and then the value of their home was premised on the name of the purchaser. You know, I was thinking in California about all the money that Aaron Spelling spent on his mansion and not once, obviously Aaron Spelling may be forgotten to many people, but not once was there anything in the value of that home of 
oh, this is Aaron Spelling's home, so therefore it's worth a lot of money. You know, it's worth a lot of money because it sits on the beach. That's why it's worth a lot of money. But it's not worth more money than the mansion next door to it of a similar square footage and design. And so this is what I mean by it being unusual. They've admitted a lot in their discovery filing to the other side, and then that goes to the court. And so I I think what makes it unusual in terms of the judge's ruling is partly premised on the admissions that the defense have made all along. So the defense could have requested a jury trial here. They could have. I'm very surprised they didn't because they would have preserved several issues on appeal that are not capable of being um, preserved on appeal in a judge alone trial. For example, media reporting on the case and how that might affect a jury, the judge's demeanor and how that might affect a jury, the attorney general's conduct in the public sphere and how that might affect a jury, whether the judge impermissibly allowed some evidence to go before the jury. So the courts in New York, like the courts on the federal side, the appellate courts, have a doctrine, it's a basic doctrine, that if a judge mistakenly allows prejudicial evidence that shouldn't be brought into evidence to go before the jury. There's a more likelihood of finding reversible error, meaning the case gets overturned. The law presumes that the judge can sift through the evidence and give it the proper weight that it deserves. And so they they forfeited a lot by going judge alone. Trump left midday on Wednesday and is expected to come back to testify later. He's once again said that he's going to testify, but we know from his background that that's not always true. In fact, times that he's promised to testify in his own defense, he hasn't. So I'm, I'm waiting to see if this is one of those times that he will. Since it's a civil trial, the prosecution can call him. They can, but then they have to weigh the calculus of, should we bother in this? And the reason is, um, see, if, if Trump is called by his own side, automatically the attorney general can cross-examine him with purely leading questions. They can set him up in a manner that they would not be able to set him up in if they called him. So, you know, they've got to weigh the risks and reward calculus in, in calling them. But they could also make the argument, because this is a civil trial and not a criminal trial, look, he promised to come here and testify and he didn't. And the judge could consider that. It's a long trial. We'll see what happens. Thanks so much, Josh. That's Professor Josh Kastenberg of the University of New Mexico Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.